Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode is brought to you by Great Hearts Academies, a nonprofit network of K-12 public charter schools offering a rigorous classical liberal arts education grounded in the best of the Western tradition. Great Hearts operates 34 academies in Arizona and Texas, serving over 21,000 students with plans for further growth underway. Great Hearts is in search of exceptional school leaders who embrace a classical and liberal philosophy of education and who possess a well-grounded vision for the moral and intellectual formation of the human person. Learn how you can join a community of classical leaders by visiting greatheartsamerica.org careers. That's greatheartsamerica.org careers. Hello, I'm David Kern with the Cersei Podcast Network, and this is the Ask Andrew Podcast, a weekly show in which Andrew Kern answers your questions about the purpose, essence, and practice of Christian classical education. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded this spring as part of the Ask Andrew webinar series and has been lightly edited to suit the podcast experience specifically. To learn more about the webinars, the podcast, or how to submit a question, head over to cerseinstitute.com slash askandrew. And with that, here is this week's episode. Hope you enjoy. Well, once again, it's great to see you. And thank you. I think I said on Tuesday how much, how much this has helped me just um, keeping my sanity during, during what's been a pretty challenging time. Um, the, the, promise that I made to you on Tuesday was that I would get finally to the to the very practical to the to the three to the physical psychological and spiritual and really I'm just going to give you not quite a checklist but it won't be a great deal more than a checklist because I want to give you specific things that can help us through a crisis in the physical realm in the psychological realm and in the spiritual realm I'll say this much by way of context, I don't think that it's spiritual to neglect the body. I don't think that it's psychologically sound to, re- to, to neglect the body either. I think that we're responsible for the care of our body. What I believe is that we have heart, soul, mind, and strength. Strength is not clear whether that's referring to the body or the strength of the soul and spirit. But when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, about seeing reality. The specific structure he presents to us in 1 Corinthians, which is not the only one he ever uses, but the specific one he uses in 1 Corinthians is that of body, soul, and spirit. And I think that's very useful. I think it's very profound. And I think it might have to do, maybe, with the fact that each of those three things perceives things a certain way. If we are dominated by what our body perceives, the Greek word again is sarx, which is often translated flesh. If we are dominated by what our body sees, sorry, perceives and what it feels, then at best, we have some growing to do. 
if we're dominated by what our soul perceives, that's a great deal better than what the body perceives. But the soul cannot perceive the things of God. On the other hand, if we are dominated or governed, maybe is a better word, by the things that our spirit perceives, that our spirit senses, that our spirit hungers for, then Paul tells us in a book written to people in a perpetual state of self-generated crisis, he tells us, nobody will understand you, but you'll, you'll understand everything, which is kind of frustrating, isn't it? <laughs> What's the good of understanding everything if it just confuses everybody else about you? How does that make you come out better? <laughs> After all, isn't the whole point of life to get everybody to like you? But he makes, a, he makes a profound and necessary point, which is that the Spirit perceives the things of God, and his Spirit is given to us so that our Spirit can perceive the things of God. But the person who's not perceiving things with the Spirit cannot perceive things spiritually, cannot perceive the things of the Spirit, cannot perceive the things of God. It's worth taking some time to meditate on that in 1 Corinthians 2 and the distinctions. But having said all of that, nowhere does Paul say that therefore the body doesn't matter. Nowhere. Nowhere does the Bible indicate that the body's not important. We all know that our Lord Jesus himself was nailed physically. His body was crucified. We know that his body was put in the tomb. We know that his body was raised from the dead in glory, and it's his body that ascended into heaven. That's kind of amazing. His physical body with the wounds, right? Apparently. That's amazing. That tells me that the body is exceedingly important. So think of it this way. If the spirit doesn't matter and the soul doesn't matter, and all you are is a body, take good care of it, but don't expect to get anywhere because you don't matter. You will never be happy. And you can see how, therefore, by subjecting the body to the spirit, you exalt the body to its place, to its right place. If you make your body your Lord, then you, you despise it because it can't handle that. Right? It would be like taking a three-year-old child and saying, here, rule my life. You would only do that to a three-year-old you hated. Right? So that's context. Now, let's talk about, given all of that, let's talk about what does that mean in relation to the body. Well, first of all, it is your stewardship. It is your responsibility. It is your duty to take good care of your body, to maintain its health to rule it for its good. Sometimes I think we should step outside our bodies and just look at them and say, look, you're going to do what's right whether you want to or not because I'm the boss, not you, right? So maintain your health. That, that's, a, that's a super high priority. And, and by the way, if you feel guilty about making such a big deal out of selfishness or whatever, you're not taking care of your body for yourself. You're taking care of it for your soul and spirit, which you're offering to God right? You're offering it to God. That's why we take care of our body. So health is so important. Now, along that line, you still have to, as Paul put it, 
beat your body into subjection. Maybe some of you don't have to. I have to. You have to beat your body into subjection. That's what, for me, the main way to do that now is swimming. So again, thanks to all of you for your prayers on that. I've been able to swim again today. And I have to beat my body into subjection, but I have to beat it lovingly, okay? <laughs> in other words, I've got to cherish this body. Paul, Paul says in the Ephesians that no man despises his body, but cherishes it. He's not saying anything bad about that. You should cherish your body. It's the only one you've got. And by the way, it's going to punish you if you don't. So beat it into subjection, but you beat it into subjection for its own good, right? The language is harsh, but that's why we do it. That's why we fast, right? We don't fast to demonstrate our merit before God and say, look, I fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays, unlike those Jews who fasted on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So now you have to let me into the kingdom of heaven because I fasted. So no, you fast because you're telling your body, you're not the boss, but you're also not telling your body, I don't care about you. That's not what you're saying. You're saying, I do care about you. I care about you so much that I'm going to make you obey. I'm not going to abuse you any more than I would abuse my child. But I'm going to make sure that you can obey me when I need you to obey me. Right? That's what we have to do. And that's why fasting is so important. Um, I think fasting is obviously important for the soul and spirit too. But right now we're talking about the body. Um, and by, when I say fasting, I don't necessarily mean 40 days without eating or drinking. Right? You can fast from chocolate. You can fat, Well, some people can. You can fast from milk. Right? You can fast from dairy. You can fast from meat. You can fast from whatever. The point is that, that you, you, you determine what you're going to eat and, you, and then you stick to it. And then when you blow it, you don't care. You just go, oh, well, tomorrow's another day. Right? Don't make too big a deal out of it. All right, so fast. But, but for the body, you must avoid anything compulsive and addictive. Right. Avoid any, especially in times of crisis. Do you guys find this, that under stress, you tend toward what's compulsive, maybe even addictive? Fasting can be compulsive, right? You can start, you can start losing control over your life. And so then you don't just fast for the well-being of your body. You fast to demonstrate that you're strong enough to handle. And, you know, it's amazing how psychological food is, forgive me. We all know about comfort food. There's also terror food, right? And there's also all kinds of things. So avoid compulsive and addictive behavior when it comes to the body. Don't eat sugar. I've said that a few times. I found another reason today not to eat sugar. The entire slave empire from the 16, from the, about the year 1570 or so to about the year, I don't know when, 1860 maybe, almost that entire time, something like, I think I read or heard, 95% of the slaves were on sugar plantations, which are absolutely brutal. Do not quote the percent. I don't know what it was. But in the early days, slavery was established on the English people wanting to have tea in their, to sugar in their tea. Just think about that. The, the price that other people have paid to get sugar to us over the centuries is unbearable. We're now being punished for it because man does sugar beat the body up. Avoid sugar. Okay. Eat lots of protein. And here's a big surprise for you. Sleep. 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 You are going to sleep tonight, later. Sleep. 
And I know that's easier said than done, especially when you have a lot of little children. Steal sleep if you have to, for their sake, but sleep. And when you can't sleep, if all you can do is lie down for 10 minutes, then lie down for 10 minutes. Let your body just go and do breathing exercises. Breathe deep. Breathe in the mouth, out the nose, right? It's God that made the body like that. And that takes me now to the, to the psychological, because one of the things that's really interesting to me about breathing is that in our culture, we are so neglectful of the body that a person can do some simple breathing exercises and it can give them such a different feeling anxiety-wise that they think they're having a spiritual experience and they become Hindus or something. Right? It, it's, it's not that big a deal, right? Just breathe carefully because God made your body healthier if you breathe carefully. Every now and again, just force yourself to breathe carefully. You're not engaging in you know, Hindu mysticism if you breathe carefully. You're, you're just sort of complying with nature. So having said that, let's look directly at the psychological. And because of the sorts of people you are, the first tip I would have for you is make sure you have something that you love to read. Something that's a go-to book. Maybe it's, maybe it's a, a particular play. By the way, I just saw a new version of, of uh, Twelfth Night, Karen and I. Did I tell you about this? Karen and I watched a new version of Twelfth Night on, uh, I don't know where we saw it. But it was, um, uh, the giveaway is a very tall, thin African-American, uh, not African-American, she's British. British actress plays the twins, both of them. And she's magnificent. So look up Twelfth Night if you like that. But have a book, a go-to book that you just love. And make it the book you go to. Um, not, not one that you're reading because you got to look smarter, but you just love this book. It's got to be a good one to keep you satisfied for a long time, but have a go-to book. Second thing is, um, I just put the word security. Establish security for yourself, I, I guess physically too, but, but your psychological security. Don't let yourself be um, unstable and needing um, too much of the world's approval or whatever. Just be, be a secure person within yourself. That's harder to, to do than to say. Um, but find that, find that value about who you are before God. And if you need to, consciously think about it from, from time to time. And probably we all do need to. Don't go to extremes on this. Don't go, I'm I'm alive, I'm alert, and I feel great every morning for five minutes. Just, just find that place of security of who you actually are as a human being in the image of God. Here's a surprise for you. This is psychological. Be nice. I, 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 find that, I find that it's better to give than to receive, but for some reason I find it so much easier to receive, especially with my words, right? Be nice the way you talk to people. Third or fourth or whatever I'm on, stay connected. That's why this has been so valuable for me. Stay connected with people that you care about, especially the people that you care about. And in those times of staying connected, don't demand too much. You know, don't, don't ask it to solve the whole dilemma. Just stay connected. Just be content to stay connected. If it's a minute a week, if that's all you can do, just stay connected. It's amazing how much can get accomplished in, in such a short time just by a gesture, just by a an expression. So stay connected. Next, forgive a lot. In a crisis, everybody's hurting everybody. Everybody's stepping on everybody's toes. Everybody's trying to find the door. 
don't get angry. Just forgive them. Try to try to make it automatic. You just forgive. Simplify. This is for the soul again, the psychological side. Simplify. Don't be obsessed with information. Right? Don't feel like every you have to be looking at the internet for the latest statistics on the coronavirus every every 30 minutes. Right? If you have determined that you need to know how many people die each day or whatever, then set aside a time when you do that, but don't let it be a preoccupation. Simplify. Don't feel like you need to know everything there is to know. Accept the fact that whenever you look at information, you have all sorts of assumptions that you're imposing on that information, and just don't worry about it too much. Just get the information you need, but simplify. Um, I can't read my, oh, avoid a misguided need for control. Okay, take dominion where you should take dominion, but don't, see, in a crisis, you're out of control, right? So don't fall into a misguided psychological need to control so that you just start grasping whatever it is and you start controlling whatever there is to have dominion over. No, just take dominion over your dominion, the one that's been given to you by God. Don't fall into that misguided, okay? Don't worship, you're going to be surprised by this, maybe. You're going to say, who would do that? Don't worship stress and anxiety. Many of you are inclined to do that. Don't deny it. You get validated by it. A crisis is a dream come true for you for a while, some of you. Don't worship it. If, if, if a crisis arouses the best energies out of you, then rejoice in the Lord over that. But don't, don't, don't crave the crisis. And don't worship the stress and anxiety, either in the sense of getting validation from it or in the sense of having to make offerings to it, right? Of feeling like it's always there and you have to appease it. Now, just the, the stress and the anxiety are there because of there's a dominion crisis. Take dominion over what you can what you should, and give the rest to God. Um, so don't worship stress and anxiety. And take on a challenge. I strongly recommend that, that in a crisis you take on some irrelevant challenge. Right? Like maybe it's, I'm going to, for the first time in my life, I'm going to go a rose bush. For the first time in my life, I'm going to write a sonnet. I'm going to, you know, just take on some challenge that, that can really, in a sense, distract you from, from what's going on. That's, those are psychological. Well, that's advice I could give to just anybody. But, but they're, they're helpful. They're good. That's the way God made us. I think they're good. That's why I mentioned them. But let's go spiritual now. Let's talk about spiritual. I'm going to pretend I have two more minutes, if that's okay with the Kate. Make yourself a living offering. Present your body as a living sacrifice to God. What does that mean? I don't know. I'm telling you to do it. Um, but there's, there's, a, there's an indifference from the spiritual perspective. There's so much security in God, so much rest in God, that when you get hurt, you just offer it to him and say, thank you. I mean, that's, that's hard to do. I'm not being glib here. What I'm saying is that 
this is miraculous. This is only the spirit of God can make us like this. Okay. But when, but we are continually, as Paul said to the Corinthians, again, he said, death works in me and life in you. He told the Corinthians that, that death is theirs. All things are yours. And among the things that belong to them is death. Spiritually speaking, this pandemic belongs to you. This virus, it belongs to you. Don't waste it. What that means, I don't know. I guess it depends on, on your goals. But one possible understanding of that that I would offer you is that when this crisis comes along, when any crisis comes along, it's going to test you. And if you resist it, if you fight against reality, then it'll break you. You can't fight against reality. But if you accept it and you just completely accept the reality of your situation with gratitude to God and you say, I have no idea why you would do such a thing to me. I have no idea what you're up to, but I trust you. Then he can transform us. But that takes a spiritual confidence. That, that takes believing that God keeps his promises. That takes believing that becoming like Christ is more valuable than anything else. That, that takes believing that he's working in you in eternal weight of glory. And that's a spiritual condition. That's a spiritual confidence. That's not psychological rah-rah. That's faith. But it's not a faith that's contrary to reason. It's a faith that perceives something. So, um, obedience. Even in the craziest situations, you know, monks, they take a vow of obedience. When we get married, in a certain sense, we're taking a vow of obedience, chastity, and, and uh, poverty. Because we're saying nothing is mine anymore. I'm going to obey my spouse and submit to my spouse in every circumstance. And what was their chastity? I'm only going, I'm going to be faithful, right? It's a threefold vow, like a monk. I think it's beautiful. Obedience. Now, there's psychological forgiveness, but there's another kind of forgiveness that, that we need to practice. That's a forgiveness that, I don't know how to put it, that it's a forgiveness that is, you see yourself as simply a vessel by which forgiveness passes through you to the other person. Whatever they do, you're not, you're not there as yourself, ultimately. You're there as the representative of Christ. And as the representative of Christ, you simply forgive. And, you, and you, you proclaim forgiveness by forgiving in Jesus' name. It's a mystery. I don't know what I'm talking about. It's spiritual. Let's talk about prayer. The hardest thing for me in this whole crisis, I would have to say, is probably, apart from just being nice, has probably been prayer. Partly because. Um, Usually it's just Karen and me here, and during this time we've had four more girls, and that takes over some of my house. <laughs> and I like to I like to have spaces, right? And I've lost spaces where I can just easily pray. But you have to pray. Time and space become a threat in 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 a in a time of um, crisis. And so during 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 the uh, yeah Betsy Ten Booms absolutely. Um, when you're in a time of crisis, that's especially when we have to hear our Lord's instruction to go into a closet is the way they translate it. That's so interesting to me. The idea is go, in, go within, into the inner room. Go into the Holy of Holies. And where's that? That's in here. You have to go within yourself and pray your prayers. Bring your mind down into your heart and pray from there. 
And how do you do that? Well, you keep it simple, right? You're not, you're not, you're not trying to express you. This is an urgent thing I would say is when you pray during a crisis, don't focus on expressing your feelings, not even about God. Don't make your prayer a time for expressing your feelings. Now, if you need that psychologically, you can bring it to God by all means. But spiritually, my, my suggestion would be that in the prayer, it should be dominated by the prayers that are prayed in heaven. And what are those prayers? I think there's two, basically. Holy, 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 and Lord have mercy. Or maybe, maybe, maybe we could say holy, 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 and there's three. Holy, 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 Lord have mercy, and Father forgive them. Those are the three prayers that, that we should be, from within our souls, we should be constantly offering up to God. In the tradition I'm a part of, there's a beautiful prayer that I would offer to you as a simple, simple, simple prayer that just by saying this over and over again, you're obeying the whole Bible, especially if you mean it. And that prayer goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, well, you've all heard it because it's in the Bible all over the place. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Just when you're about to strangle your child, or your spouse, or whatever, pause and say within yourself, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And if you can, if you can make that, if, I, my goal in life is to mean that prayer with all my being. Because the Lord said of the, of the publican that when he prayed it, he went home justified. Right? If I could mean it like the publican, right? And if you say that simple prayer, you are invoking, you are calling on the name of our Lord Jesus. And what did Peter say in the book of Acts, St. Peter? What did he say? He said, there is none other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Quoting Joel, he says, anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he says, notice that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. So when we call on the name of the Lord Jesus, in a very vast, expansive sense, we're calling on the name that saves. And every other prayer, I believe, is contained in that prayer somewhere. So I would urge that kind of simple, worshipful, grateful prayer. And don't forget, please, confession. Have mercy on me, the sinner. When you come to God and you're angry at him, that's okay, but make sure that you also confess your own sins. And I think the way I would end this part then is to say that what you want to be doing in the spiritual perspective, from the spiritual perspective, is to the limit of your capacity, you want to be turning your psychological and your physical energies into spiritual energies. Okay? And, and maybe what I mean by that, I read that somewhere. That's how I can repeat it. So I don't know what it means. But I think what it means is something like this. Physically, I can move around. I can move my hand back and forth. I've got enough energy to stand here and talk to you. Okay. If I take that energy and offer it up to God, it is now being used spiritually. Psychologically, I've got all sorts of energies psychologically. I've got a craving for honor. I've got a craving for respect. I've, I get angry. I get, I get um, disappointed. I get excited. I, all these things are just psychological. Something happens to me, I have a psychological reaction. But if I take hold of that psychological reaction and I turn it to God in prayer, then I'm taking my psychological energy and I'm spiritualizing it. I'm, I'm making it spiritual energy. 
right? You, do you see what I mean by that? So there's an energy, there's energies that God gives us so that we can know him. But if we let our physical energies but just be physical energies, then we've made the wrong thing Lord. If we make our psychological energies just be psychological energies, hunger for knowledge, for example, the willingness to study, that's psychological. Okay. But if I make that ultimate and my goal is to become learned so that I can become learned as opposed to knowing God, then I've stolen that. I've robbed that from the Holy Trinity who gave it to me so I could know him. You see, we need to take those energies and offer them up to God, never more than in a crisis. And underlying all of this is that gorgeous, beautiful passage that we call Hebrews 11, where we see character after character enduring unbearable, unspeakable crises. Bodies sawn in half, women losing their children, some getting them from the dead, getting them back, right? But all of them having faith. That's why it drives me crazy the way we think of faith and reason as these two things in conflict with each other. Who, who came up with that insane idea? As if. Faith, I won't go into it. Not now. I'll just say, anybody who thinks faith and reason are in conflict with each other doesn't know how reason works. So, and doesn't have faith. Well, doesn't realize how much faith he has in the wrong things. So be prayerful. Sometimes speak your prayers and be thankful. And if you can, I'll land here. If you can, and I can't because I'm German. If you can, shed tears before God. Tears for yourself, tears for the world, tears for your children, tears for your sin. Mourn. If you possibly can mourn, offer that mourning up to God. It's one of the most spiritual things we can do. So being spiritual is weird. But that's what we want to get to. All right, I'm done. <laughs> okay. One of the questions that was sent to me is carrying on with this same topic. So I am going to time you. You are only going to have one minute. But this will give you a chance to talk more about this question of prayer. How do we um, invite our children into prayer in this time and even use this as an opportunity to teach them how to pray? You know what? I'm struck by something you said that I really, believe it or not, hadn't thought about until you said it the other day when I asked you about your own upbringing. Katie had spent summers at, at my parents' house many times. And one of the things that, that you said is that when you were there, you noticed they always had a time for prayer. I think the most important thing of all is that you have a discipline. I'm not even going to say a given time, but you yourself have a place and a time where you, you regularly pray. And sometimes you ask them to come and join you, right? Sometimes. But it's just the atmosphere of your home is that prayer happens here. Um, if you have a, in my tradition, we have prayer corners. And we love to go into this corner and, and, and we pray there. If you can attach any kind of, uh, um, you know, it's like coming home to, to, to the, House when mom's baking bread. Can you, can you bring in some kind of warmth and comfort in those moments? Please be very, very careful not to be legalistic about it. Um, but that doesn't mean undisciplined, right? To, to say I'm going to pray every day at 7 o'clock is not legalistic. 
is legalistic to say, to, to say every day I'm going to pray at 7 o'clock because that's going to make me better. That's going to make prove that I'm one of the good guys. And I'm going to force these other people that I rule over to, to pray at the same time. Um, big difference. So um, is my time up? You're supposed to, you, you threatened to time me. Yeah. That? So along a similar vein of thinking about how to do this with our kids as well, um, and thinking about quarantine and homeschooling, um, how do we, during the quarantine, when we have to be isolated and wearing masks and all of these things, how do we practice hospitality? How do we love our neighbors? And how do we um, still teach our children how to love each other when we are in isolation and can't even talk to our neighbors sometimes? Yeah, that depends. Or if we can, when, you know, there might be different levels of quarantine, but, you know, whatever stage you are in. That's a good question, and the way I'll respond to that is, is, is to say that one of the difficulties of living in the digital age is that you have to be so much more intentional about everything you do because there's so many more people around, there's so, and there's so much more information. And in the past, you know, if you grew up on a farm in 1712, the year 1712, you're not spending the whole day trying to process verbal information about how things are going all over the world. You're just living your life and you've got space to live it. Unless, well, forget about it, all the qualifiers to that. But in this day and age, we have to be so much more intentional, which is exhausting. But I would say that, that um, a backyard read-aloud is a good thing. If, if you have a fence and you can meet at the fence and say hi to your neighbor, you know, it's little things at a time like this. Little things make such a vast difference to say hello, to mow their lawn, to, to depending, again, find what, what, whatever your circumstances are. What do your neighbors need? Um, do they need to know that you're going to wear a mask because even though you don't think they're important, they're scared? Will you do that for them? Right? That, that would be an act of love of neighbor. Um, you just you you find out some way to say hello and talk. I've had a few convert. I've probably talked more with my back neighbor than I have before the the virus because we're both home more often, and so we talk from deck to deck, which is not great, right? I mean, in a way, don't be a perfectionist or an idealist here, right? Just do do little tiny things that you can do and wish you could do more. When you can do more, do more, but do what you can do. Am I, am I answering that question? I mean to be. It, it seems like a really vague answer, but do something, right? And then and be intentional to the degree that you have to. Set aside a time when you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure I do this. And, and I, now, see, now, Katie, you're making me very insecure because you said I could only have a minute. You said you're going to watch it, and you're not. So now I have to put my timer on. Yep. You were just you were just ending and your minutes up, but you were winding uh, on yourself. No, I didn't. No way. I, I was getting bored myself. <laughs> if it seems that you're naturally doing what you ought to be doing, I'm not going to tell you to do it. Well, now I'm going to use this and artificially do what you're supposed to do. Oh my! Jenny, um, well, I'm actually. Uh, Jess, what? What about, what, just real quickly, what about praying together at the breakfast table as part of morning time? I have no problem with that myself. I have no problem with that at all. So those are the questions that were sent to me. Um, there was one other question that someone emailed, but it was 
very long. I asked you parts of it, but um, we don't have, it's like a main question kind of thing. Um, so I don't have any other little one minute questions. So if people have more, they can text away. Well, let me, ask, um, but I don't have any. Other let me respond to Jenny by asking if there's anything more to that, because I just gave a very you know, do it answer. But is there, is there anything more to that, that I should know about that question? And, and, and Jenny, you have one minute. We're timing everything very strictly, as you know. I always worry that I'm putting people on the spot, too. Read from the Bible, do a litany prayer of St. Francis. goes on for, Oh, I love it. Are you kidding? Oh, but if, if I've miscommunicated anything, this I have to say. Keep it short for your kids. If you have one minute of quality prayer time with your children, six times a week, four times a week, do not think to yourself, ah, oh, but the school has so much more time. School's not as powerful as God. And if you, if you open up, if you open up your soul to the Lord himself for a minute at the beginning of the day and you turn your intentions, how many times have you been in a meeting and they prayed at the beginning and the whole meeting was changed by it, right? So, I mean, what I'm getting at is if you're doing 10 minutes, <laughs> this might sound funny, but you might be going too long for the typical kid. Um, pray for missionaries. Love it. Pray through the voice of the martyr's calendar. Yeah. Recite scripture. All of that. All of that. The only thing I would say is be cautious about doing too much at one time. Um, you know, when I say a minute, if, if, you, uh, if you can pray for a minute at 9 in the morning and then another minute at 11.30 and then another minute at 1.15, that can be very... I find my life is much better if I take short breaks to to just pray short, short prayers where I direct my attention back to our Lord. I love the idea of praying for missionaries and martyrs, golly, and, you know, the voice of the martyrs. Reciting, singing, absolutely. I might interject briefly. Um, I taught a lot of Muslims in Uganda, and there was a mosque within literally a stone's throw from my house. And I learned the beauty of habitual prayer time. Um, and when the students would stop what they're doing, whatever it is that they're doing, and congregate together um, and kneel down and pray, um, it just became a really, really beautiful thing and a way of keeping time. And I loved that my orientation changed. So instead of keeping time and then praying based on time, I would pray and keep time based on prayer. Mm. And that orientation switch was really beautiful. And I learned that from my Muslim students, something I'm very grateful to them for. That's nicely said. Yep, the word, the word of God works in the heart of the child. We, we are proclaimers. We're not arguers. We're not debaters, right? Paul's explicit about this. We proclaim, constantly proclaim the gospel to your children. Constantly remind them in gentle tones. Christ was born of the Blessed Virgin. Christ was crucified. Christ rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and he will come again. That's the gospel. Right? Keep telling them that. Keep telling them that. But not obnoxiously. In a million, in a million different ways. And the word of God will work in them. Oh, how beautiful. Ah, 
I like that too. That's a lot easier in a in a in a um a school setting many times than in a home setting because you know the kid is ringing the bell and there's all that family dynamics. But if you can do something like that, especially when they're younger, that's beautiful, beautiful. Created to worship. Oh my goodness, yes. Everything that we say and everything that we do should be energized by worship. It, it won't all be a specific act of worship in the sense of I am consciously talking about God by doing this, but it should be energized by worship. Stories of saints. Yeah, talk about real heroes. Yeah. Yeah. I just love so much that I can have a conversation like this with you all, knowing that, <laughs> I think I said this on Tuesday, knowing that, that what you want is for your children to love our Lord Jesus. And there's nobody who loves our Lord Jesus more than his father. And if we, if we worship and revere and cherish our Lord Jesus, then the father comes to our help just don't get in his way right <laughs> don't 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 insist on being the important character there the holy spirit will come the angels will come and they'll help we are so far from being alone how many of you know that story oh nice how many of you know that story about is it elijah who i think it might have been elijah and elisha when um there was a battle going on and I, the, the subordinate, the younger guy was really scared and the older guy, and let's just say Elijah and Elisha, and then you can check if I get the names right. But Elisha was terrified. And so Elijah says, Lord, show him your armies. And he saw the angels. He saw the angels all around the mountains. Well, that's, that's for us. It's, it's not terribly likely that the Lord will part the clouds and help us to see that. And yet maybe, maybe the spiritual person does see that. Maybe the spiritual person does see that. Yeah. I love that the, the, that's an example that the violin training is oriented toward worship. It changes everything. Right. Okay. Distraction, right? This is, if I were to give a, an, an image of crisis, I would say that it's, maybe I've used this with, with you all before, but it helps me, is the image of a compass, right? We are, we, are, we are a compass created with a magnetic attraction to point north. And our soul and our spirit and our bodies are all, by nature, by creation, oriented toward gazing on God. It's all they want. The trouble is, take up a compass sometime and put magnets around it. Watch what happens. We're surrounded by these magnets. And they just constantly pull our needle off course, off, off away from the north. Repentance is throwing away the magnet, right? The compass doesn't have the power to, to toss aside the magnet. But by repentance, we are given that power. You could say we're given authority over demons. We're given authority over our own thoughts. Because we can reorient them by repentance. We can reorient them. And, and I think one thing, be careful about this, that 
when I talk about thoughts, I don't necessarily mean some kind of, you know, deep theological analysis. That's, that's not what I'm getting at. I'm not really primarily thinking about, um, what do we call it, discursive thought, like writing paragraphs about God in your mind. That's not really what I mean. I, I mean, a, a thought that you just hold on to. I think I said this on Tuesday as well, didn't I, about, about um, or maybe last week, about, about something I read about how you, you, the, the spiritual person is so simple. Right? And yet in that one simple statement, you can walk up to this person, like maybe a Father Zosima in, in the Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. You can walk up to this person, you ask him a simple question, he says a simple answer back to you, or maybe you tend to spend 10 minutes asking a question, and he gives you this simple answer back and your whole world has changed. Somehow there's an energy when they talk. And that's, that's what we want to strive for. We want to, we want to escape in a certain, be careful how you take this, because I'm not going Hindu or anything here, but in a certain sense, you want to avoid your restless mind. Oh, here's a story for you. This, 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 this is a personal testimony. This, this might help you understand what I'm getting at. I was talking with a friend, gosh, this is almost 20 years ago now. Wow. At a conference in Dallas, sitting out on a deck, none of this matters, but we were, we were discussing, we were discussing God and I had all kinds of questions, theological questions. And at about after about probably 30 or 40 minutes of this conversation, this guy who was a very peaceful, quiet person, he looks at me and he goes like this. I remember that physically, I remember his gesture. He says, Andrew, your mind is going all over the place. I can't keep up with it. And my immediate thought was, how do you think I feel? But, but, but he kind of drove home to me in that moment, and I can't remember what else he said, but he drove home to me in that moment that my questioning discursive mind can be just a distraction, right? Can be dog seeing squirrel and going squirrel, right? It can be that. That's not good thinking. Just because you're asking lots of questions, if you're not doing it with discipline and you're not doing it with simplicity, that's not good thinking. And what, what, what I learned from that and tried, it's been almost 20 years, I've been trying to get this, is that very simple fact of God being simple, right? That he's not a complex being. He is utter simplicity. He is absolutely pure. And so when we think about him, if, if the form of our thought is chaos or anxiety, then we're not thinking rightly about him. That's why I love that prayer that I, that I quoted earlier, the prayer that's drawn from the scriptures. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, the sinner. See, I can say that over and over again and never exhaust it. Another perfect prayer, of course, is the prayer that our Lord taught us to pray. When his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And what does he say? He says these words, when you pray, say. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Wow, that's holy, 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 right? In heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. There's the whole Bible. As in heaven, so on earth. Give us this day our daily bread, all our needs. 
and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. If you have enough time, go ahead and say that whole prayer. <laughs> but if you only have, if, you know, if the stress level is too high, just say Lord Jesus sometimes. I sometimes wonder if the characters in movies are going, oh, Lord of mercy, if that's not just sort of a condensed version of that prayer. I'm gonna, now I'm going to stop talking and read these, quote, these comments here. We're so distracted. The great thing about being in such a distracted age is that we all know now that we're totally distracted. We no longer have any excuses. A good soldier, yeah. Right. And of course, your, your physical and psychological needs in this world can either be a distraction from God or they can be offered up to him and made a means of approach to God. Your job, if you're, if you're you know, in employment all day long, your children, they seem like they're always pulling you away from God, don't they? You stupid children, if you weren't always distracting me, I could be holy, right? Well, yeah, but they're the means. Our work is the means. Our gardening is the means. We have to offer it up like that. I love that in Latin. <laughs> Didn't teach it in English. Oh, I'll tell you what. Yeah, you can't really teach them how not to be distracted. What you have to do is teach them how to be tracted. And so, so that means paying attention, right? And, and here's something we have talked about quite a bit. The single most important thing you teach your children is how to pay attention. And sometimes that's an act of fasting with your mind, right? No phone, no online, whatever. I'm fasting with my intellect, fasting with my mind. I'm going to focus. Sometimes it's entering into chaos around you, but keeping your focus. We have to teach our children how to pay attention. Single most important skill they'll ever learn, how to pay attention. What are you laughing at, Katie? Oh, behold. Ah, nice. Who said that, Jenny? I've heard that before. Yeah, yeah. It sound, it's it, Somewhere in my mind, there's the idea that Lewis said it, but it kind of sounds like him and it kind of doesn't. Mostly because he hated children. Yeah, reading books aloud is a good example. Uh, one of the things, one thing that I found is, as I'm aging is that I do need to read lines a lot more often. Right? When I was young, I read so fast. Didn't understand anything I read, but I read fast. Now, now I have to read, I think maybe I'm trying to understand things better, but I have to read things more than once. Another thing is reading aloud, absolutely. What, what you wanna do is, is force yourself, force the mind, to attend, right? to note what's happening. Ah, yeah. God bless you for taking your time with it. It is. It is a skill. It's a skill to teach it, and it's a skill itself, right? In other words, paying attention is a skill, and teaching how to pay attention is a skill. That's why I like threats. Well, that's true, Dan Daniel, but 10 years ago, we were saying the same thing. That's kind, of the, that's kind of the amusing thing about being 56 is that, is that when I was 46, I heard people talk about how much we've declined since 
I was 36, but when I was 36, everybody was talking about how much we declined since I was 26. And when I was 26, they talked, and none of them were wrong, by the way. One of my favorite things is when people talk about the good old days in education in the 80s. Good grief. I went to school in the 70s. There were no good old days in those days, I tell you what. Two miles from hell, it's still hot. Huh? Huh? Oh, good. I think, Jenny, what I would say to that is keep up the... Keep up the high energy focused work and things will, they have a way of assembling themselves. If there was a thing to do, it would be um, my medic teaching will help you with that. It, it, it's, a, it's an integrating mode of teaching, very integrating. It makes subjects unnecessary, in fact. It also makes subjects less dangerous. Did I mention to you all an article by David Mamet that's going to come out next week? called The Code and the Key. Fascinating. Get, get, try, try to read it if you get a chance. We have other things going on. We have uh, writing intensives, Lost Tools of Writing 1, 2, and 3 classes. And I would like it a lot if, uh, if any of you were able to attend stuff I do, because I'm just selfish that way. And I've got a, 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 year, a school year long atrium session and class coming up this fall called um, One Art to Rule Them All. And it's about rhetoric, but um, be careful, because if you think that it's about rhetoric the way you think it's about rhetoric, <laughs> it's not. So what we're looking at is the nature of rhetoric, something of its history, but it's going to have a much more practical bent to it. And Katie, in particular, will be teaching Lost Tools of Writing, levels one, two, and three. Um, over the course of the whole the whole year, um, but it's going to get into some pretty pretty big questions about rhetoric. I I think we've talked in here at least a little bit about the colossal collapse that happened in the late 16th and early 17th century to the to the Western European mind, and it really isn't impossible to trace it to particular people and places. Um, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you two two clues. Politically, Henry VIII did something that altered the mind of England and and through him the whole world in a way that still affects us today. And around that same time, a, a guy named Peter Ramus changed thought in France that then spread around Northern Europe and into England. And in a word, what they did, well, what Ramus did is redefined the trivium. He took the classical trivium of grammar, logic, and rhetoric and made it something completely inadequate. Completely inadequate. And so, uh, for now, I'll leave it at that. Henry VIII is an interesting character because he did something an an analogical to that in politics. But it matters. This is the sort of thing that we might talk about. So I'll tell you this briefly. That when Henry VII, Henry's father, took control over the English monarchy, he established the Tudor dynasty. And if you know a bit about English history, you know about the Wars of the Roses between the Yorks and the Lancasters. Did I talk about this with you already? So the Yorks and the Lancasters were Normans. They'd been fighting each other for 500 years now. And under the feudal system, 
every family that was landed in England, their task, their responsibility was to provide knights to the king when he had a war to fight, which meant every noble lord had to keep up a bunch of knights. Well, one of the things that did is use up their resources. Another thing that did is make them fight a lot because they could, right? And so that's why the Yorks and the Lancasters have this long, drawn-out, centuries almost long, war. When the Tudors win the war, Henry VIII becomes the second Tudor king. And he says, in effect, I'm going to terribly oversimplify, but in effect, Henry VIII turns to his noblemen and he says, hey, dudes, I mean, Dukes, sorry. Hey, Dukes, I noticed that you guys look tired. And I noticed that most of you are dead. So I have a deal. I'm going to make a deal with you. From now on, you don't have to keep all those knights and retainers that you've been taking, taking care of. You don't have to waste your fortune on that. All you have to do is pay a tax to me, and I will take care of the whole English army. Now, if, if, if you look back at medieval history, this is a colossally big difference. This, in one sense, brings about modern politics. What he's done is he's, he's ended feudalism for all intents and purposes, and he's concentrated all the power, all the military power of England in the person of the king. Okay? And then he says to the, well, put it this way. If up until this point, your function in life was to provide soldiers for the king, knights, now what's your function? Now what do you do? Well, to be a little unkind, what they end up doing from that point forward with a variation that changes because the king's power diminishes, but at that point, what they do is they become decorative, right? In other words, now their function is formal. They're going to preserve the language. They're going to be a model of manners. And so the common people are to look to them as the model of, 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 of manners. And then they care for the people on their estates and things like that, like in Downton Abbey. But the basic thing, the basic function now, to really oversimplify, but their basic function in the 17th and 18th century is to be an ornament on English society. That, hi, Larissa, that is the parallel politically to what happens to rhetoric. Because if there's no longer debate and so on, and we're all subject to the king, in a sense, what's the point of rhetoric? It becomes an ornament. And rhetoric, when it's an ornament, loses its meaning and its power. It becomes, a, it becomes what we now call rhetoric. Those two things both happened in the 16th century. And that is why, if we want to go back to a classical education, we can't go back to the 50s. We can't even go back to the 19th century, although certainly there was classical education happening. But if we want to get the full, um, we want to get the most of it that we can possibly get, we need to go back to prior to the 16th century, prior to what Peter Ramus does to the trivium, prior to the complete contortion of the seven liberal arts.
Now we teach subjects because of that time. Now we teach, we teach using methods because of that time. Now we teach using standardized tests because of changes made then. Now we are governed by the IRS because of changes made then. That's the sort of thing we're going to talk about in the atrium. I'm in the process of studying and figuring it out. But um, with that, I'd love it if some of you could take that. I'd also love to see you at the conference, whatever it is. I'd also love to see you at ACCS or SCL, where I'll be on, the, on their conferences. And I'd love to see you next Tuesday. So I feel like, in a way, something's ending because we're cutting it back to one day a week. But in a way, it's not. So let me just say how much, again, I appreciate you, how much, how much this has meant to me, and how much I look forward to seeing more of you in the future. So um, well, let's end with that. It's past 10. So may the Lord remember you in his kingdom. 